It's good to be with you this morning. We're in all of 2 Samuel 19. It's a long passage, so I'm going to be doing more summarizing than normal. I trust that you'll have time in the next few days to read 2 Samuel 19, if you haven't already, carefully. Before we get any further, let me pause and pray and ask the Spirit's help. Father, you are matchless in all your ways. You offer in Christ to separate us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. You've been a gracious, self-giving father. And we pray this morning that you, Holy Spirit, would lift up Christ in our midst. Help us to see that this world is brief and momentary and that you, Lord Jesus, are coming as the king to rule and to reign, to reward your people and to defeat finally those who rebel and reject you. We pray for your help now, Holy Spirit, in Christ's name, amen. If your ultimate hope, I mean the thing that you're hoping for, is something in this life, then what do you do when the circumstances of your life begin to unravel? How do you cope when your life, the life that you've planned for, does not meet your desperate dreams and expectations? Because at some point, cancer or financial losses or the betrayal of someone you love will invade your story. And when it does, your ultimate hope, if it's in this life, whether it's for security or acceptance or control or respect or adventure or comfort, whatever it is that you're hoping for, if it's something in this life, it will be found wanting at some point. Anything we put our ultimate hope in, in this life, inside of time and space, is a house of cards. It's a castle built of sand and completely unreliable. Instead of hoping in something in this life, we need an anchor outside of this world. We need a source of security that's untouchable by the hard things of life. We need a king with real authority and a determined kind of love. A king who promises to return and make all things right. Now you may ask, Tom, how are you not guilty of misplaced optimism? Because the king I'm talking about was nailed to a cross and came barreling back from the grave. And this king's father is totally faithful and steadfastly loving. And this king sent his spirit to be with us and to strengthen us and to comfort us and encourage us and to equip us for the days of our lives. Our text this morning is 2 Samuel 19. And 2 Samuel 19 recounts the return of King David to Jerusalem. Now he has to return because he's been chased away. He's been chased away by his rebellious son Absalom and all the people of Israel overwhelmingly who support Absalom instead of David. But now Absalom is dead and Absalom's vast army has been defeated and all the people who have rebelled against King David have fled back to their homes. But here's the thing, the return of this king doesn't feel all that triumphant. In fact, David's return to Jerusalem feels dim and unspectacular. 
The people of Israel are a bit indecisive as they think about returning the king. And the kingdom that King David returns to is just a shadow of what it once was. And this actually is helpful because it teaches the people of Israel that David is not the king that they need. David's kingdom was unique, but David's kingdom was temporary. And the unimpressiveness of David is meant to press our hearts forward to the descendant of David yet to come. And here's the intersection between our lives and 2 Samuel 19 that I want to hold up before us this morning. Don't put your hope in anything in this life. Nothing in this life is a trustworthy anchor. Instead, faithfully serve the king while you eagerly wait for his return. Faithfully serve the king while you eagerly wait for his return. I'm praying that this sermon inspires us to faithfully serve Christ and to remember that we are not yet home, but we serve and await a king who will return soon. So let's move through this story. It's a bit complicated. We're going to move through it in four scenes, and we're going to think together about application. Verses 1 through 8, David is rebuked by Joab. This is what Colin just read well for us. David's in a terrible jam. He's in a jam because his army just won a spectacular victory. But the death of his son Absalom in the midst of that battle, no matter how much of a scoundrel Absalom was, is a severe body blow for the king. And so David is publicly weeping and he's mourning the death of his son Absalom when he ought to be celebrating the victory that his people just won on his behalf. They were vastly outnumbered by the rest of the people of Israel and they came out on top. And the king's weeping, we're told, makes the army feel like they've just done something shameful. And so Joab, the general, rebukes the king directly. These men saved your lives and the, wives of your, and the lives of your wives and your children, and you shame them today with your tears. You tell them by your tears and by your weeping that you wish Absalom were dead, that you wish that they were dead and Absalom were still alive. And listen, king, if you don't fix this, by the time the sun sets tonight, not a man will be with you. Joab's basic message is that David needs to get out there and act like a king. And so David hears him, he rises, he takes his seat at the gate, and the people come and present themselves before him. We can understand David's strain. He's caught in a conflict between justice and love. His love for his son Absalom, despite what Absalom has done, causes David to want to spare Absalom from justice. His love causes him to be tempted to spare Absalom from justice. But sin requires justice. Sin always requires justice. And so God does not spare his only son whom he loved when his son needed to wear the sins of the world. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32. Love and justice come together at the cross where the father does not spare the son for the sake of love. Instead, gives up his only son so that we might be reconciled through him. 
Here's the second scene, verses 9 through 15. David returns to Jerusalem. As I said, all of Israel who's rebelled against David, they've returned to their homes. And the rebel king Absalom is dead and their army has been defeated. And there's a question of what happens next. The new king is dead. The old king is in exile. Look at verse, verses 9 and 10 of 2 Samuel 19. Here's the end of 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hands of our enemies, talking about David, and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we appointed, anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? A conversation hums throughout the tribes of Israel in the land. Hey, this Absalom thing was kind of an unfortunate distraction. We all sided with him. Now he's dead. The army has been defeated and David's back in exile. Don't you think it's time that we bring David back and anoint him, re-anoint him king? Now, you may remember that the people of Israel are organized into 12 different tribes. David is from the tribe of Judah. And David hears about this conversation that's happening throughout the land of Israel in all the tribes but his own, the tribe of Judah. And so David sends his faithful priests, Zadok and Abiathar, to the people of Judah to ask them why they're the only ones not talking about reinstating him as king. Look at verse 12. You are my brothers. This is David to the tribe of Judah through the priests. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Listen, Judah, there's chatter everywhere except in your tribe, my tribe, about bringing me back as king. This is a political maneuver by David. He's using the interest of the rest of the tribes to pressure Judah into action, and it works. In verse 14, we read that all of Judah is persuaded to make David king again in Israel. But before that, David does something unexpected in verse 13. He takes Absalom's general Amasa and makes him king in place of Joab, his own general, who's been general for a long time. And he's just suffered this humiliating defeat by David's army. But he takes Amasa, his nephew, and places him as general over the army in place of Joab. Now, this is probably both an attempt to punish Joab for not listening, for rebelling against the king's wish that they, the son Absalom be treated gently. But it's probably also an attempt to unite Israel back around David. And we'll come back to the disappointing reluctance to restore David as king in a moment. But first, let's go to verses 16 through 30, where David restores his enemies. Having been invited back by Judah and the other tribes of Israel, David and his people make their way back to the Jordan River to head back to Jerusalem. And on the way, they're met by a group of grovelers. First is Shammai, who cursed David and threw rocks at David as he was leaving and crossing the Jordan on his way out of the city. And with Shammai comes a thousand men from the tribe of Benjamin. This is Shammai's tribe, one of the twelve, and also the tribe of King Saul, the former king of Israel. So they come to David, this group of people led by Shammai, and they meet David at the river. Look at verse 19 of 2 Samuel 19. And Shammai said to the king, he's got a lot of nerve, 
Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the King, David, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord the king. He's confident. We can give him that. But the crowd with David is unimpressed. Look at verse 21. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Now, Pastor Alistair Begg joked that Abishai never met a person whose head he didn't want to lop off. <laughs> He's not wrong. Abishai has been faithful and committed to David all along. He's also a very violent warrior. And this is another opportunity for him to misread the moment. He misunderstands David's heart. He misunderstands what God is doing in this moment. This is a day not to exact vengeance. This is a day to be gracious and to reunify the kingdom. Look at verse 22. David said to Abishai, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Now, Abishai is the brother of David's general, Joab. So David zooms out the camera just from Abishai to both of these brothers and says, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? Now, after Shammai comes another man, Mephibosheth, that I was really hoping I wouldn't have to pronounce his name again. But Mephibosheth comes with his servant Seba. Mephibosheth, you may remember, is Jonathan. So we have King Saul, we have his son Jonathan, and then we have the grandson Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the only remaining grandson of Saul, the only remaining, I should say, the only remaining son of Jonathan. And David, instead of killing the remaining son, gives him all of King Saul's property and gives him Seba to manage that property because Mephibosheth had his feet broken when he was a child and cannot care for the land himself. Now we saw Seba last, this manager of Mephibosheth's property, when David fled from Jerusalem. And at that time, Seba told David that Mephibosheth had betrayed him, that Mephibosheth was looking to take the throne of his grandfather, Saul. And therefore, when David sees him here, he has questions for Mephibosheth. Even though Mephibosheth shows up having not taken care of his feet, not shaved, not washed since David left the city. Look at verse 26. Mephibosheth answered David, who had just asked him, why did you not go with me? My Lord, O King, my servant, speaking of Seba, deceived me. For your servant, me, said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. Seba has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king, but my Lord, the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death because they were in the line of Saul before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry out to the king? Now that he is actually crying out to the king. But David wonders who's telling the truth. And I don't know if David is unconvinced or if David just wants to help these two men reconcile, 
but he splits the property 50-50 between them. And then in verse 30, Mephibosheth, maybe in a cry of innocence, maybe evidence of his innocence, says, I don't want the property. I just want proximity to you, David, king of Israel. That's the third scene. David restores his enemies. Now the fourth scene. David reclaims the throne. Two subpoints in this fourth scene. First, we meet a man named Barzillai, who had supported David while he was in exile. And then the second subpoint is we observe a disappointing dispute between Judah, one of the tribes, and Israel, the rest of the tribes. Barzillai was an extremely wealthy man who remained unquestionably loyal to King David while he was in exile. He was a wealthy man and he met David's needs, provided him with food while he was in exile. David, now that he can return to Jerusalem, wants to repay the favor, wants to show gratitude for Barzillai's generosity and invites him to come to Jerusalem to be a part of David's household and to spend his remaining days there. Look at verse 34. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can, he, can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. Now, he may be overplaying his hand just a little bit. 80 is not that old, but he longs to die at home. That's clear. He wants to die in his own city, but he sends instead his servant, the trusted servant, Chimham, whom David is to bless in his place. And so David and his household, including this new servant, cross over the Jordan. But verse 40 lets us know that while all Judah, that one tribe of Israel, while that tribe brings David across the river, only half of the rest of the tribes are there. But by verse 41, all of Israel has arrived and they're expressing frustration that Judah, the last to call David back to be king, are the ones in the place of honor. Look at verse 42. All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, because the king is our close relative, why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares, meaning 10 tribes in the king. And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So we can see here the first signs that Israel is about to break into two kingdoms. Now it will wait to happen until David's son Solomon dies, but it's coming. And we'll have the 10 northern tribes of Israel, usually, at least from this point forward, referred to as Israel. And then we have the southern tribe, two, mainly the tribe of Judah. Now, Here's the point, I think, the best I can tell. This is not the glorious return of the king that we expect. This is King David. He's returning to the throne, and everyone seems to be reluctant. The whole thing feels anticlimactic, which helps Israel look forward, not backward. 
David's reign was special, but David's reign was not the destination for God's people. It's an imperfect, a very imperfect foreshadowing of what is to come. To a time when every knee will bow in heaven and on earth when the prince of glory appears in power. And I think this is the intersection between our lives in 2 Samuel 19 and where it starts to become clear. So let's go back to the beginning as we think together two points of application. This is not just a story in the Old Testament. This is a story that's meant to do good for God's people. If we hope in something in this life, that thing will betray us in the end. Because nothing in creation can bear the weight of our souls. Nothing in creation can bear the weight and the freight of what we long for deep in our hearts. So instead, our job is to faithfully serve the king while we await his return. Faithfully serve the king while we await his return. Look beyond this life to the eternal king who is coming. So let's think about faithfully serve. While King David lived in exile, faithful priests Zadok and Abiathar served him faithfully. So did his advisor Hushai, who sought to defeat the counsel of the renowned Ahithophel. So did the servant girl who risked her life to rush out of the city of Jerusalem to tell the priest's sons the plan to go after David. So did the advisors and the family members and the soldiers who fled Jerusalem with the king. So did Barzillai, who faithfully provided for David while he was in exile. Now, each of these individuals believed the Lord's word. God anointed David as king. David is our king. And even if the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of Israel went with Absalom, these few remained faithful to God's word and God's king. At this very, very moment, King Jesus is seated victoriously at the right hand of God the Father. Right now, as we sit in this room, Jesus, even now, has done the work to defeat sin and death and Satan, and he only awaits the perfect time, the appointed time, to return. So the world yawns in boredom at King Jesus or yells in rebellion against him. But his return is imminent. And he sent his promised Holy Spirit to empower the church to make it until that point. He sent the Spirit to empower us to serve him faithfully while we wait. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, or flip there in your phone to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 helps us both with the application of faithfully serving the king and eagerly awaiting his return. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul's providing final instructions. He knows he's about to die. He knows he's about to be persecuted and martyred for the gospel. And he sends these final instructions to his protege, Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Paul says, I charge you, Timothy... In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. I'm charging you, I'm calling you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom. Paul is saying, in light of the fact that Jesus, the judge of the living and the dead, will return and bring his kingdom. It's coming. That's the context 
in which Paul charges Timothy to do the following. Preach the word. Be ready. In season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? This is needed because of verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. Paul says, Timothy, pay attention. For a time is coming when people will depart from the truth. Therefore, in light of the fact that this will happen and in light of the fact that Jesus the judge will return and bring with him his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Church family, we have to take this word on board. What we are seeing with our precious neighbors and colleagues and children is not unexpected. Paul said to Timothy... 2,000 years ago, expect willing departures from sound teaching. Expect people to turn willingly, knowingly from the truth to depart from it. We should expect that those we love will collect for themselves, will surround themselves with teachers and teaching, teachers and content that suit their own desires and passions. We should expect it. We should expect that those close to us will turn away from truth and wander into myths. What we're seeing in our lifetime in that way is not unique at all. But the word to us this morning that I think intersects with those who remain faithful to King David is that even if this wandering, this departing from the truth, even if it happens in great volume and we are left in a small minority, we preach the word. We proclaim the truth. We live according to the Bible. We stand firm on God's word. In season or out of season, whether the message of God's word is popular to those whom we love, but whom we disagree with. Whether it's in season or out of season, whether the message makes sense to our neighbors or it seems foolish and offensive, no matter. We stand firm on the truth. We reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And we do so, how? We do so with patient teaching. Patient teaching. He does not say that we shout he doesn't say to pound our fists at our neighbors. We patiently teach our neighbors what God's heart is like. We stand firm and we faithfully serve the king. And that discipline of patient teaching, it guards us from the outrage that marks our culture. We have no need to outrage. We have no need to panic. We have no need to be angry. We serve the king who's already won and he will return. We have no need to employ the tactics of the world around us. And then in verse five, he says, as for you, always be sober-minded. You cannot be outraged and sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. 
Be sober-minded. Do not be deceived into overemphasizing this life and underemphasizing the next. Don't be deceived. Live for eternity. Remain focused and vigilant. Life is short. Eternity is long. Put your hand to the plow with joyful earnestness and faithfully serve the king. He says, endure suffering. Be willing to bear the cost for faithfully serving our king. It doesn't mean we welcome the cost. It means when the cost comes, we endure it. We endure it just like Christ endured it. You see, we can be gentle because Christ is the judge. And Christ will return and he will make all things right. Do the work of an evangelist. Our neighbors, our children, our coworkers, they need the hope of the gospel. They need us to speak. They need us to proclaim. Paul says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Do what God is calling you to do in the classroom, on the field. Do it in the office. Do it in the conference room. Do it at the school board meeting. Do it over the dining room table. Fulfill your ministry. Do the work of an evangelist. Endure suffering. Be sober-minded. Faithfully serve the king. And while you do, eagerly await the king's return. This is the second point of application. Eagerly await. Faithfully serve. Eagerly await. I would describe, as I've said, the reception of David by Israel as lackluster and unspectacular. The call of the New Testament is for us to eagerly await the return of Jesus. Not to wait for it, to eagerly wait, to love the returning of Christ. Here's 1 Timothy 4, verse 7. Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Literally, the fight I fought, the race I finished, the faith I've kept Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day when he returns. And not only to me, it's not just for Paul. This reward also, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Not tolerated it, loved it. Loved his appearing. Loved the appearing of our king. Love it. All the faithful service to King Jesus will be rewarded on that day. A crown of righteousness waiting for those who loved his appearing. <clears throat> Part of eagerly waiting is constantly reminding ourselves that this world is not our home. That's why our ultimate hope can't be here. That's why I started there. Our ultimate hope can't be in something in this life. We're waiting. We're looking. We're anticipating we're anchored by what's coming, which gives us a loose grip on the now. Nicole and I took our kids camping in Maine, and we loved just about every minute of it. But as great as the views and the hiking were, as great as the sleeping and the eating were, the tent in Maine was not home. It's our tent, but it's not home. Remembering that helped us ignore some of the hardships that we faced right? This is not home. This is just for a moment. This is just an adventure. Home is coming. Beds are coming. All our people are coming. This home is just temporary. It's a tent. And brothers and sisters, this world that we're living in, this body that you're inhabiting is temporary. 
resurrection is coming. So church family, take the hard and the happy things of your life and tell yourself this is not home. Take the hard and the happy things, the difficulties and the blessings, and tell yourself repeatedly, this is not home. Soon, our relationships won't be complicated by sin. Soon, our bodies won't be weighed down by disease. Soon, our souls won't be polluted by sin. Soon, our minds won't be ransacked by fear. Soon, the treasures of this world will be eclipsed by eternal reward. Soon the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of God and his beloved son, Jesus. Soon our lives won't be threatened by death. Soon our tears will be wiped away by the tender hands of our shepherd. Soon all violence, wars, and injustice will be consumed by Jesus' peace. Soon our faith will be replaced with glorious sight. You, friend, will search in vain for ultimate hope in this world. If you're looking for hope or rest or peace or security or adventure or comfort or respect or control, if you're looking for something in this life to provide those things, you will search in vain. Philippians 3.20, we read, our citizenship is in heaven. Our citizenship is already in heaven. And it's from there, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your hope there. Eagerly wait for the coming of the King. We are carrying a lot as a church family. A lot. Anchor your hearts in the return of a King. He is coming. The victory has been won. Oh, Christian, embrace the fact that the victory has been won and your faithfulness to Christ does not depend upon you. He has sent his spirit to empower you to do what he's called you to do. Jesus came for you. Jesus obeyed for you. Jesus died for you, rose for you. Jesus is preparing a place for you and Jesus will soon come back for you. That is the hope of the gospel. He's doing it all. You be faithful to him in the power of the spirit that he's sent to strengthen you and wait eagerly for the return of King Jesus in the clouds with power. And while we wait, faithfully serve him. Lord Jesus, we look to you this morning with glad and grateful hearts. As we think about the hard and happy things of this life, we rejoice that you are king and that you've done all that you needed to do to rescue us from all those hard things and you will reward us with things that far exceed the happy things of this life. So give us a loose grip on this life. Give us a determination to proclaim the hope we have in Christ. Give us the will to love our neighbors well in the power of your spirit. Mark us out. Use us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.